a listener production. Off, so you'd think it would be easier, but no, somehow no. that was harder. No, that was two weeks that I didn't move, so that was harder for me. <laughs> My body's confused. You crossed it back up. Yeah. yeah, it all just stiffened back up. Mm-hmm. Yay! Welcome. So I guess you guys know how live shows go by now, because we've um, had a couple of yeah. them on the Some of you might have come last year. Yeah. We did a couple down here then, yeah. Hey, we've uh, levelled up since last year. That was... Last year we were like, let's just turn up and chat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we did a whole to-do this now time. Now we have gowns. We have gowns. Um, so we'll tell one story each, uh, because we know, like, you know, some of you like one of us better than the other, and we didn't want you to miss out on your fave, so we'll tell one story each... Um, a little bit shorter than usual, just mm-hmm. so we can fit it in for time. But that's how it's going to go. Love that we started late because you guys are such keen, enthusiastic drinkers. Yeah. That the line, <laughs> the line at the, at bar, the bar was too so dense. Long. We were like, oh, they're gistners, they're tardy and they want to get drunk. <laughs> Our people. Our people. Yay. So, shall we do some... Okay, here we go. 2020, 2021, and now 2022. Haven't been that great so far. Mm. Not not the best. My niece, Lyria, finished high school in 2020 and sort of got out into the real world and was like, is this, is this life? Is this what life is mm. like? And I was like, well, I don't really remember, but no, I, I do think it was different and it might be different again. So it's been a bit shit, but researchers and historians have nominated what they think was the worst year ever to be alive. 536. AD? Yeah. yeah. BC? I don't know. One, it's just the gist, <laughs> as if I know. Doesn't it just start at zero and go up to where we are now? <laughs> There's a midpoint. Why is that th- funny? Is that something I should know? <laughs> okay, 536. Dr. Miles Pattenden is the Senior Research Fellow in Medieval and Early Modern Studies at ACU, and he chatted with ABC recently to tell them, guys, don't feel so bad about how things have been because there was a worse year, and it was 5.36. Do you want to know why? Here's what he said. So we think what probably happened in 5.36 is there was at least one, but probably three, big, like, big volcanic eruptions uh-huh. near the equator. And so they sent ash up into the atmosphere and blocked out the sun for the whole world. So we just went into, like, serious drops in temperature, snow in Darwin type thing, mm-hmm. and black, just black, 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 dark everywhere. So this led to crops failing. There was serious famine, starvation across the world. And what happens when people get hungry? They get hangry. Mm. So then conflict and fighting broke out all over the place. And so then... If you made it through the volcanoes erupting and through the sun disappearing and through the starvation, then through the local wars, you'd think, yes, like 
5.36 almost over, like all of us at the end of 2020. We made it. It can't get any worse than this. Just before 5.36 ends, the few people who had survived it all were hit with the first wave of the bubonic plague. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't think things could get any worse, then people literally started shitting blood in the streets. (laughs) And you know how we wonder, like, like, things are sort of starting to feel normal again. We're here doing a show, but, like, and it's great being out, but things still feel a bit off. You're like, when are we going to really feel like life is back mm. to what it was before COVID? Like, how long till we get back to normal? And based on how long it took the world to recover after 5.36, things don't look promising because Dr. Pattenden told ABC that if you were 18 years old in 5.36, the world would not have gone back to what it was before that until you were in your 90s. <laughs> Good luck, us! Oh, Okay, grim. next up. I've got some breaking Caleb news for you. Okay, so remember when the petunias got stolen? (laughs) Furious! Furious! Haven't found the culprit yet. Last week, he was at work and he put $2 in the vending machine to get a packet of chips. Got stuck. Put another $2 in to get the chips behind it to get it out. The second packet got stuck. Two packets stuck in the vending machine. Sent me a photo. He was furious. <laughs> furious. <laughs> now, most people would just think, oh, and walk away. No. Emailed the vending machine company. <laughs> Piece of his mind. You're such so a So angry. And I was like, please keep me abreast of what happens because I must, I'm going to be making fun of you at a show and I need this story to have an amazing conclusion. Okay, here we go. It has a conclusion. A couple of days ago, while he was at work, he sent me a photo. Someone had left on his desk a piece of paper with two $2 coins and it just said, refund for vending machine. (laughs) (laughs) He never got an email back. I can't imagine, although maybe he was going around telling everyone in the office, I don't know. (laughs) And I said, well... Email the vending machine company, find out if it was them. He's like, oh, it probably wasn't. I was like, I need to know. <laughs> Caleb, do we know? I'm told it was the vending machine. Yeah. How did they know? I guess they got the email. And so some guy was like, oh, who is this Karen? The guy who owns the vending machine, I'm sure, came in to the office, found out where your desk was, got $4 and put it on your desk. Like, there you fucking go. <laughs> Maybe we'll come home one day and there'll be $5 where the petunias were. Ooh. Who knows? Justice could yet be served. Okay, one final bit of breaking news about my favourite person, Elon Musk. (laughs) So the other night he got turned away from a super cool nightclub in Berlin um, called, I asked you how to say this, I didn't tell you the story, but I asked you to say this because Jacob Jacob speaks fluent German. Mm. Bergheim. Bergheim. Berghain, Berghain. He got turned away from this super cool club in Germany called Berghain. And then he tweeted, they wrote peace on the wall at Berghain. I refused to enter. And then everyone on Twitter was giving him shit because they were like, A, you obviously didn't get in. And B, nice typo, loser. So everyone was just making fun of his typo. Here's the fragile masculinity involved in the next step. 
The next day, he bought a con- controlling stake in Twitter and immediately put up a Twitter poll asking if people want an edit button so you can edit your typos in your tweets. <laughs> oh, he was then, The CEO of Twitter retweeted his poll and like it was some kind of bizarre hostage situation said, please vote carefully. The consequences of this poll will be very important. <laughs> to buy a controlling stake in Twitter, you could, like, feed the world ten times over forever Mm -hmm. and he's like, no, people tease me about my typo. I'm buying Twitter. Wow. What a tanty. And what was the outcome of the poll, though? Um, I think most people said they wanted an edit. Everyone wants an edit button on Twitter because it is really annoying when you do a typo and you're like, oh, that was a really good Twitter, which I could change it. Can you not just delete it and do it again? Yeah, but then you lose your stats. Like, so people have already liked it and then you lose your likes. Um, I'm not on Twitter anymore. I'm on TikTok now. And... Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was... Very good. I can't get over how fragile he is. I know. Wow. I know. I knew you liked that one. That's why when I asked Jacob how to say Berhain, I like... Maxed in on my screen just to show him the words so he couldn't see the story at all. Mm-hmm. It's such a shit nightclub, by the way. Has anyone been there? Oh, Bergheim? Oh, they make you queue for hours and hours to get in there. I promise you, it's not worth it. Yeah. Don't bother, guys. Although we've probably all aged out of that little phase of our lives, unlike Elon. All right. So strap in. I'm going to tell you a story about some naive rednecks who managed to steal. Oh, we've got some fans in the house. These particular rednecks were successful in stealing $17 million worth of cash in the US in 1997. So we're talking about $41 million of Australian currency today. And they could have got away with it if only they'd followed the plan they'd set up for themselves. Sadly, they did not. Things ended badly. This is just the gist of what's known as the hillbilly heist of 1997. Now, you can probably guess it's given that name because everyone involved lived in trailer parks in North Carolina. No crackalacky. They all ate biscuits and gravy, breakfast, lunch and dinner and drank sweet tea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the main character is a guy called David Gant. He was 27 at the time and he was miserable. He was in a marriage that he felt was pretty loveless. He was barely making ends meet despite working 70 to 80 hours every single week at his job as a supervisor at a company called Loomis Fargo that transported cash around the city. The only excitement he had in his life was this flirtatious friendship he had with an ex-colleague called Kelly. And in David's mind, Kelly was the perfect woman because she loved NASCAR and she rode quad bikes and she watched action movies. So he was smitten with her and completely worshipped her. she's one of those girls who like, who's like, I don't even like wine. I like beer. Oh, yeah. I'm not like other girls. Mm-hmm. I'm like beer. Yeah. Sports. Very much acted like one of the boys. Yeah. <laughs> she was married herself to a man named Spanky, I might add. <laughs> Spanky. Mm-hmm. 
But she led David on because she really enjoyed the attention she got from him. Now, David's miserable job at Loomis involved moving money around all day long in this armoured truck, taking it between banks and ATMs and the giant vault that they had at the base um, for Loomis. And he was handling millions of dollars every single day, which meant that he was having to wear body armour and carry a gun everywhere he went. So it was a super dangerous job, but he was only getting paid $8 an hour because America. And every single day, without fail, everyone at the company, David included, would make dumb jokes about taking some of the money home at the end of the day. Ha, 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 ha. And no one believed that anyone would ever actually go through with that until in March of 1997, a Loomis employee down in Florida made off with a truck full of $19 million in cash. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden it seemed possible and that got folks pondering. And 97, yeah, the Spice World came out round about that time. I I completely understand the context now. Mm. Um, But it's like things like, you know, People weren't, didn't have a super sophisticated understanding of things like the internet, GPS. Yep. You felt like if you had a truck with 90 million bucks, you could just drive to a farm and yep. no one would find you. Loomis didn't have GPS yet, so he literally <laughs> just hid the whole truck yeah, in a right. storage space. Okay. He ended up getting caught because he was a terrible liar, sadly. Mm-hmm. But he managed to hang on to the money for a few months. Hey, that's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, one day Kelly called Dave up and said her friend Steve had come up with this foolproof plan to rob the vault at David's branch of Loomis. They just needed an inside guy who had all the keys and all the codes, which was Dave. And Dave laughed it off. He had never broken the law in his life. He was a war veteran and he was not interested in becoming a criminal. But Kelly kept pressing every couple of weeks when she'd speak to him and then... When September of 97 rolled around, Dave got a credit card bill and he worked out the maths and realised it was going to take him more than 30 years just to pay off that credit card bill. So he started picturing himself entering his 60s, probably still living in that trailer, still in debt, still married to Tammy, who he really was not fond of. Tammy. 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 I love it. And so he figured he had nothing to lose that he gave a shit about, so he called Kelly up and said, you know what, I'm in, let's do it. And Steve's plan was really very simple because Dave from time to time could be alone at the base, so he just needed to identify one of those moments. And when he found that occasion, he'd then move all the money from the vault into one of the Loomis armoured trucks. He'd simply drive away, then leave all the money with Steve so that Steve could hide it, keep it safe, and then Kelly would help David get out of the country as quickly as possible. She'd then eventually go and meet up with him in Mexico and then start a happy new life together. Oh, oh. like Melissa Caddick did it when watching Billy. Oh my God, they should look at that. Oh, sorry, I just remembered. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> Is it out already? Yes, there's only two episodes. Terrible. It was clearly a rush job, but they do, in the end, show her biting down on the leather strap and someone has a chainsaw and it's a whole to do. And then the final scene is her on this yacht with this super hot sex idiot with this really sleek prosthetic leg. (gasps) We knew it. We knew it. Highly reco, worth it for the last 30 seconds. (laughs) Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. What's it on? Uh, Nine now, nine streaming service, nine now. Okay. Whatever it's called. All right, I want to go home more now and watch it. I mean, I'm not going to... I mean, I want Nine Now's money one day, so I'm not going to tell you I only watched the last five minutes, but I saw the bit that's worth it. <laughs> it was good. Should we get back to the story? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
me interrupt too much? <laughs> so they'd start their new life down in Mexico. Steve would split the cash up evenly between yeah. them, somehow get it to them in secret. They would all agree to keep the money hidden for at least two years, which is when the case would go cold and the FBI wouldn't be looking for them. And then they could just start living like Kardashians for the that's, rest of their that's lives. That's a tough rule to follow. Mm-hmm, as we'll see. Now, Steve was thrilled to have Dave on board, didn't want to waste a moment. He got him a fake ID as soon as he could. The name that David was going to start going by was Michael McKinney, and they were then ready to press go on the plan in early October. The night this all went down was a Saturday night. It was just Dave and one other guy there at the base. And at the end of their shift, Dave pretended to lock the bolt, and the other guy was a trainee, so he didn't notice that there was anything shifty going on. They walked out to their cars, said goodnight to each other. David watched as the other guy drove off into the night and then he went back into the building and started moving all of the cash from the vault to the truck in silence. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Kelly and Steve and a few other accomplices that Steve had brought in, most of whom were his cousins, they were all (laughs) waiting outside the fence. And were half of them married? To each other, yeah. Yeah. Um, Dave expected it was going to take him like 20 minutes, maybe 30 to empty out the vault, but he'd really underestimated the volume and weight of the paper money that was in there. (laughs) He didn't know it yet, but he was going to be moving more than a metric tonne. It weighed more (gasps) than a standard car. More than a tonne? Mm-hmm. Metric tonne. How many dollars is it? 17.3. 17.3. Weighs more than a ton. Because mm-hmm. a lot of it was fairly small bills as well. We're talking everything sure. from a one all the way up to a Benji. Yeah. Okay. Um, it took him well over an hour and he was dripping in sweat because he had that to do hundreds days. of <laughs> an hour. It was exhausting. And meanwhile, Steve and Kelly, they're outside absolutely freaking out about why it's taking so mm-hmm. long. They're thinking something's gone horribly wrong. We should abort the mission get out of here, just keep our hands clean. Kelly kept sending pages to Dave. Remember when people had pages? Oh, yeah. like a beeper. Yeah. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. And she'd send him a message saying, I love you, but hurry the fuck up, please, or yeah. give us some sort of update. Finally, when he had every last note out of that vault, because he had a real no-man-gets-left-behind policy <laughs> on this job, he set a time lock so it would be impossible to open the vault for the next five days. And then he went to the manager's office and pressed eject on the two VCR machines that captured all of the security footage. Took mm-hmm. the VHSs? Took the VHS tapes Why with him. Why wouldn't you eject them first? Don't let it record at all. Let's talk after this about coming up with a better plan. Before he got into the Loomis truck to drive it away, he walked over to his personal car and left his wedding ring on the driver's seat as sort of a poetic way of saying goodbye to his old life and to his wife. Oh, yeah, shade. Yeah, that's so shade. What shade is that? That's Mm. so, like, I switched baristas. Very bad. That is very bad. Super dismissive, yes. (laughs) Um, He wanted to just then drive off in triumph, but he couldn't because the electric gate was broken and he couldn't get it to open. And so he started to panic, but then he thought, oh, wait, there's the other gate. I'll just go use the other gate. Couldn't open that either. And he was there thinking, oh, my God, it's all over and I haven't even made it out of the car park yet. This is so upsetting. He really was panicking and started contemplating, could I put all the money back and then just act like none of this ever happened? Yeah, 
It, yes. He can't. He's set. He was he's screwed. Got to, he's got to go or do something. Thankfully for one of him, one of Steve's muscly cousins came over and forced the gate open from the outside, so they were back on track. Yeah. And they all drove to the rendezvous point, and Dave handed his giant key ring to one of the cousins yeah. and said, this is the only key that opens the back of the truck. Do not lose it. <laughs> and then he filled up a bag with stacks of $20 notes. He figured it was probably around 40K that he had, and that was going to tide him over for the next couple of weeks yeah, while yeah, he was yeah. waiting for the rest of his share. And then he jumped in Kelly's car and off they went to the airport. And they were giddy. This was the biggest thrill of their lives. They couldn't yeah. believe they'd pulled this off. Kelly asked him how much he thought they'd got, and he said, I think it's somewhere between 15 and 20 million. And she cackled and screamed out, I'm a rich bitch now. <laughs> They were absolutely elated. But then as they started to get near the airport, and this is around 10pm at night, Dave was like, all the lights are off. Looks like the airport might be closed. Oh, they hadn't booked tickets. What time is the flight you booked for me? And Kelly was like, I didn't book you no ticket. Oh, my God. And he's like... That was your one job. You're in charge of transportation. And she was like, I am literally driving you right now. What more do you want? And so then he was like, well, I'm going to need to get to a 24-hour airport. The nearest one is in Atlanta. Yeah. And she was like, I am not driving you all the way down to Atlanta. I will take you to the bus depot and you can get a Greyhound. And so that's exactly what he did. He had to catch a bus to Atlanta to get a plane. Kelly kissed him goodbye before he left and said she promised she was going to meet him down in Mexico. Mexico. She had absolutely no intention of doing that. So does she get a cut of the money without him? That's agreed. Or because she was meant to take take care of transportation, Mm -hmm. so she deserves a cut of the money. She fulfilled her obligations as far as she was concerned. Okay, all right. Meanwhile, back at the truck, pure chaos because Steve's cousin had not been paying attention when he was handed that key. So he was frantically trying to try out more than 125 keys to try to get one of them to work. Meanwhile, all the rest of them, because they were running so far over schedule, they're freaking out. Steve's throwing rocks at this bulletproof vehicle. (laughs) One of the cousins is trying to headbutt it open. It's just 15 minutes of sheer panic before they finally manage to get the doors open and they start moving the cash into these big, tall, blue plastic barrels that they'd brought along. Okay, I have a question. This is because I watch Breaking Bad Mm. and I know that because they're stupid and they have paper money, Mm. it's really hard to keep it from, like, going mouldy and bad and you have to, like, treat it with special mould stuff and take care of it. And did they think of any of that? I doubt that very much. Yeah. They're just putting it in barrels. Just putting it in barrels (laughs) so that they can move it from A to B. Problem was, didn't bring enough barrels. (laughs) So by the time all their containers were filled they still had like two-fifths of the volume of cash sitting there. And they started having this big fight over what they were going to do with it, whether they just like shove it in the back seats of their cars and try covering it up with a blanket (laughs) or something. Stick it down your pants. Yeah. They ended up deciding that's too risky. They were just going to have to leave the rest of the money. They didn't know it, but they were leaving behind $3.5 million when they ditched the truck in the middle of the woods. The next morning, Loomis employees showed up to their shift. Dave's car was there in the parking lot, but there was no sign of him 
one of the armoured trucks was missing and the vault was impossible to Mm -hmm. open. So something was very, very wrong. They called the cops and the FBI. Tammy had also called the cops to say her husband hadn't come home the night before. Tammy. Poor Tammy. Tammy. I do feel for Tammy. Um, Everyone told the cops that they really believed Dave must have been robbed possibly kidnapped and maybe even killed because he was a model employee. They could not imagine that he would have stolen the money for himself. They said he must have had a gun to his head. When the branch manager got there, he told the FBI that he had a secret third VCR set up to capture all of the security camera footage. So together... This is like a mass reunion. (laughs) They watched the one hour of footage. Yes, they fast-forwarded as much of it as they could. They could see Dave moving the cash out of the vault and it seemed possible maybe there is someone off-camera who's got a gun pointed at him. But then they got to the end and saw that Dave did a little victory dance when he finished (laughs) emptying out the vault. Yes. He celebrated his win. He did not look like someone who was under duress in any way. So the FBI felt comfortable starting a nationwide manhunt for David Gant. But he was already in sunny Cancun. So he'd made it. He'd made it all the way to Mexico, yes. He smuggled his $40,000 of $20 notes in his cowboy boots and he strapped some of it to his torso using a pair of pantyhose. And when he got there, it was the most amount of money he'd ever had. So he wanted to start enjoying it. He checked into a luxury resort under his new name, Michael McKinney, and switched straight into holiday mode. He spent the first few weeks doing every activity they had available, scuba diving, horse riding. But that's the thing. If you've never had money and then you have $40,000, you think you're a millionaire. Mm -hmm. You can't afford to stay in a luxury resort. No. Yeah, like... That's not going to last long. No. I mean, he thought he had at least $4 million coming his way yeah, at some point. Yeah, but not for two years, they said. No, no, he would have it, but then he wouldn't be able to spend it on American soil. Right. I think is what they were thinking. Okay. Yeah. He really wasn't. The whole point of this story is these hillbillies. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's just like, yeah. I've got endless money forever. That's yeah. pretty much it. He was eating four very decadent meals <laughs> every day. Not thinking at all about Tammy, who he'd abandoned with bills that she was never going to be able to manage on her own. He was too busy playing water sports. Why are men? He was only in contact with Kelly. Once or twice a week, he'd send her a pager message saying to go to a payphone in town that he'd call. And their conversations would in the early days, always go along the lines of, when are you coming? I'll miss you so. Please get down here soon. Are you even sure that's how they talk or did you just pick that accent? I just went with Southern. I'm not quite sure how regional this is. Um, And Kelly'd be like, yeah, yeah, soon, soon, soon. Steve's just, you know, getting the money sorted out and then I'll get down there. Whenever I can, no intention of going to Mexico. But it was true. Steve did have control of the cash. He was portioning it out to all his cousins that Mm -hmm. had been involved in instalments and telling them, you have to be very, very discreet. Hide the money if you absolutely must spend some of it. Make sure it's only for essentials. Don't go making any extravagant purchases because that could get the attention of the FBI and then we'd all be screwed. And, of course... All of his cousins were like, yep, mm, mm-hmm, mm, mm, totally, yep, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But once they had the cash in their hands, they just could not resist That's treating a big ask themselves. Of oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
within like a week, Kelly had bought herself a brand new minivan. She moved <laughs> out of minivan. yeah. <laughs> Best we can say about Kelly, she's practical. Practical. Yeah. She moved out of her trailer and into a nice big old house, and she took her entire family on a vacation to Florida. Florida, America's penis. <laughs> One of the cousins paid for his wife and his sister, who I hope are two separate people, <laughs> to each get breast augmentation. <laughs> The biggest purchases by far were made by Steve and Michelle. They completely ruined everyone's chances of getting away with this. The FBI started monitoring Michelle pretty early on in the piece because a few days after the heist, she'd walked into a bank with a big bag of cash and asked, how much can I deposit without you having to notify the police? And the teller was like, $10,000, and she was like, great, and pulled $9,500 out of the bag, handed the stacks of cash over, still wrapped up with the Loomis Fargo seal. And she winked at the teller and said, don't you worry, it ain't drug money. (laughs) So the teller submitted a suspicious activity report the second Michelle left the branch. Within a couple of weeks, that report had made its way to the FBI team who were investigating Mm -hmm. what had gone on with this Loomis case. Um, And so they started looking into Stephen Michelle's financial activities and turned out some of their recent purchases included a white convertible BMW that they'd purchased with cash, a brand new motorcycle. Oh, motorcycle? Vroom, vroom. Um, (laughs) Matching sun tanning beds. Grand piano, $200,000 worth of Cuban cigars. They were renting limousines to take them to New York City to go on shopping sprees around Manhattan. And they'd just moved out of their trailer as well and had moved into a million-dollar mansion in a gated community that they'd paid for with cash. So the FBI were monitoring those guys very, very closely and also they were monitoring Kelly because, like all of Dave's friends and family, she'd been brought in for questioning, but she was the only one who refused to take a polygraph test. So they were like, okay, you're guilty of something. We will start monitoring you quite closely and they started surveilling her 24-7. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while this is going on, Dave's just naively enjoying himself south of the border, assuming everyone's following the plan back home, right? Dave. Weeks well, past. Well, not poor Dave, because then you think about Tammy and you're like, no, fuck you, Dave. Mm. Okay, that's fine. He started getting low on funds and he was really, really missing Kelly, so he arranged one of their calls and he was like, honey bear, it's been six weeks, come on down. <laughs> she just rolled her eyes, promised, yeah, yeah, she was going to come and she'd get Steve to send him some more money and she went to Steve to say, hey, can you just send him some cash? And Steve was like, look, I've been thinking we could send David his cut of the money, we could, or, hear me out, we could have him killed and just split that cash between you and me. Yeah. And Kelly was like, oh, no, we could never, we could never, absolutely not. How would we even do something like that? <laughs> And Steve was like, oh, easy, you just go down there like he's been asking. You wait till he falls asleep and you just inject him with a syringe full of bleach. (laughs) 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 
And she's like, well, absolutely not. If we're going to do this, we're going to hire a professional. And Steve's like, you know what? That is a great idea. Let's go ahead and do that. I know a guy. So he called up a hitman who happened to be the real Michael McKinney and offered to pay him $250,000 to go down to Mexico and kill the fake Michael McKinney. So if he's the kind of guy who sells his ID, he's probably the kind of guy who kills someone. Oh, yeah, yeah. This wasn't his first hit that he'd taken out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So he sent Michael McKinney down to Cancun with a big wad of cash that he was going to use as, like, bait to get him close to David, and then when they were alone, he was going to snuff David out. Another simple plan Mm -hmm. that ends up falling apart. Mm -hmm. Kelly spoke to Dave, and she told him there was a guy whose code name was Bruno that was going to be bringing him some cash, and Dave was like, well, okay, but I want at least $50,000. Kelly hung up before he could get to any of the, I miss you, I love you sort of stuff. When Bruno, like when I talked to Caleb on the phone. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs> when Bruno got to Cancun, he was looking for a skinny, pale redhead. But by this time, four meals a day, David really filled out. And he dyed his hair a dark brown and he was using buckets of fake tan. Oh, so, like people think you do. Yes. <laughs> he doesn't. It's all real. It's Any- real. Pure sun damage. It took a few days for Bruno to find Dave, and in that time, he just went ahead and used the cash that was in the wad he'd been given on strippers and drugs and booze, so he was having a really good time. Kind of disappointed when he finally did find Dave and handed over what was left of the money. Dave was furious because it was only $8,000 that he was handed, and Bruno was like, well, that sounds like a you and Steve problem, and off he went. Next day, Bruno rang Steve and said, I just didn't get an opportunity to kill this guy. I guess I'll have to come back again in a week or so. Oh, so he's trying to milk. I was going to ask, why didn't he kill him? Because he wants another holiday. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. And so that pattern just kept repeating over the next couple of weeks. Bruno would fly to Cancun with a wad of cash for David. He'd blow through half of it partying and then he'd report back, oh, failed again. Better luck next time. <laughs> And Steve was really frustrated, but he didn't know any other hitmen, so he didn't have a better plan. And Dave was getting really angry because he could see he was getting played. It was going to take forever for him to get his $4 million in instalments of eight grand. He also started to get very, very scared for two reasons. Firstly, when he was out one night, an American tourist came up to him and said, you look a lot like that guy who robbed that Loomis Fargo vault oh, back so in America. Oh, over the news Oh, stuff. yeah, America's Most oh, Wanted every oh, week. Yep. Oh, mm-hmm. love that show. And back then it was like everyone watched it because mm-hmm. there was free day TV, was it? That's like, right. So Mike was like, oh, shit, my disguise's not working. But no, oh, sorry, David was like, oh, no, my name's Mike. Yeah. <laughs> I sell software for computers. <laughs> and he's thinking, oh, my God, my fake tan and dye job is not really doing the oh, trick. No. And the tourist was like, oh, dang, I could have got that $500,000 reward if I'd turned you into the FBI if you were that guy. And Dave was like, oh, shit, the bounty hunters are going to be coming after me. Also, and- I love how just all tourists from America like that now. That's yes, forever and always, okay. yes. <laughs> the second reason he was scared, one of the resort staff had told him that Bruno had been asking around town about where to get a gun. And so oh. he thought, oh, this guy's dangerous. Yeah. 
So Dave moved, started lying low, stopped doing all the fun activities he'd been doing previously. Mm-hmm. He just stayed in his hotel room, watched movies, ate M&Ms and noodles. If he ever did leave his room, he was carrying a knife, mm. really paranoid. He arranged a call with Kelly and he was like, this is whole shit, I want my money. I'm lonely, I need you to come down here this very week, Kelly. And Kelly was like, oh yeah, okay, well, we'll figure something out. Where did you say you've moved to? Where are you staying now? And she hung up on him. None of them knew that the payphone, Steve's phone, Kelly's phone, all their phones were bugged by the FBI at this point. So, of course, the feds heard all of this. They knew exactly where Dave was now. They also overheard Kelly calling Steve to tell him Dave's new location, where to send Bruno to finally finish the job. And they decided, okay, it's time. We have to move in and arrest everyone who's involved in this. So it was March of 1998 by the time they made their move. Their sting operation went very, very smoothly. They arrested Steve and Michelle and Kelly and all the cousins within minutes of Mm. each other. So they can't page each other. mm -hmm. No opportunities to warn. Almost all of them were naked when the FBI turned (laughs) up, by the way. Just a fun detail there. Dave, meanwhile, was on his way to a laundromat down in Mexico when he was approached by this group of very well-groomed Americans. And he was like, oh, these are either assassins or they're bounty hunters or they're feds. And he went to pull out his knife. But before he did, he said, you FBI? And they were like, yes, sir. He was like, oh, praise the Lord. He was so relieved. Yes, he he really thought he was going to wind up dead. He knew that the maximum sentence he was going to get if he was arrested was 10 years. He could live with that. Mm. Totally fine. Surrendered, happily went back to the US to the safety and comfort of a federal prison. (laughs) So this was, of course, a very big news story because the details were just so delicious and when Steve and Michelle's home was raided camera crews from every network were there to capture the detail of all the tacky stuff they'd been spending their money on especially the artworks erotic sculptures paintings of dogs wearing army uniforms (laughs) and one of the things that got the most attention was a painting of Elvis Presley on black velvet people were dying over that because it's just such a cliche of white trash or into that type of thing. And because the case had such a cult following, when all of the repossessed items went up for auction, the bids for these things, like the Elvis painting, were outrageous. Everyone wanted a piece of history. Everyone wanted some memorabilia. Even the big blue barrels, they sold for thousands of dollars. Yeah, It's like a cool story. Yeah. It's like a cult item to own. That's right. And some of the people who purchased the stuff would then charge people to come and see it in their homes. Cool. It's like how I paid Carol Baskin $350 to give you a birthday message. The equivalent of cameo back then. Yes, totally. Now, behind the scenes, everyone who'd been arrested was just ratting each other out, hoping that they'd get a more lenient sentence for themselves. They all ended up pleading guilty because they could see there was just far too much evidence against them to not. Dave was pretty crushed to watch Kelly testify that, yep, she participated in a plot to murder him. (laughs) They all ended up going to prison... For obvious reasons, the ones who had the longest sentences were the ones who were involved in the murder plot, including Bruno, who said he didn't realise until he was arrested that he could have turned Dave in and got a $500,000 reward rather than the $250,000 he was being offered to kill him. Didn't do the math until then. 
Dave ended up serving just over six years. He was like a hero in prison. Yeah, they worshipped yeah. him because of what he'd managed to pull off. And when he was released, he moved to Florida, got remarried, had a daughter, and he has a really, really happy life. He's been in a bunch of documentaries where he's very candid talking about his experiences. Mm. He also got to act as a consultant, unpaid for obvious reasons, can't profit from a crime, on the movie Masterminds. Some of you might have seen yeah, that. But very it, loosely based on this story. It wouldn't have been unpaid because they said Anna Sorokin was unpaid, but like they pay it to a trust that goes to another trust that goes to another trust mm. and then all of a sudden she has the money. They would have paid him. That could well be the case. He honestly said that he was just happy to eat at the craft services table every day and make friends with Zach Galifianakis who played him in the movie. <laughs> he says he wouldn't change a thing about his life. He's so happy now. You know, everything that's happened has led him to this point. He ended up writing a self-help book a couple of years ago called The Book of Dave. The Book of Dave. With all the lessons he's learnt throughout his life. It's full of southern wisdom and personal anecdotes Mm. and advice. And I do have one little piece of advice that I think I'll share to wrap things up here. Let's hear it. In Dave's own words... We all need a good friend who will tell you when you're being a dang idiot. They will tell you, yeah, you know what, this is going to go poorly for you and no, I am not going to hold your beer. (laughs) Solid advice. Solid advice. So that, friends, is just the gist of the hillbilly heist of 1997. (laughs) Oh my god, I love that so much. Love that you love rednecks so much, whoever's over I there. Know. <laughs> I mean, what's the Aussie equivalent? Bogans. Bogans is the equivalent, yeah. Okay. Alright, are you guys ready? You ready for this? You guys are. You are <laughs> At our last live show, I asked the audience to remember a time when they'd been young and in love and an idiot. And then I gave just the gist of Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson. Mm. This time, I want you to think about couples who have been told they can't be be together, but do it anyway. Star-crossed lovers, like Romeo and Juliet, or Prince Edward and Wallace Simpson, or Oprah and Gail. (laughs) (laughs) This week, dear Gistners, I'm giving you just the gist of Margaret and Peter, a couple who fell in love and had sensual sexual encounters despite the fact Margaret was just a 23-year-old woman and Peter was a dolphin. (laughs) Strap in. It was 1963. Do we all need a sip of a drink? Let's just all take a gulp, shall we? I don't think I'm ready for this. Okay. He has no idea. I messaged him today and I said, this is going to be a Jacob cannot stop shrieking story. I feel like I should put the mic. Okay, here we go. It was 1963. And Margaret Howe Lovett was living on the Caribbean island of St. Thomas. Mm-hmm. She'd always had a fascination with the possibility of humans being able to talk to animals ever since she was a kid. So when she heard about a 
Dolphinarium that had opened on the island, she went there immediately to take a look. Mm -hmm. What is a Dolphinarium, you ask? I will tell you. There was this famous neuroscientist in the US at the time called Dr. John Lilly, and for quite a few years, he had been studying dolphins and their brains and their use of language and the way they communicate with each other. And dolphins are famously very intelligent. So Dr. Lilly began to theorize that dolphins could eventually be taught to speak English. And he did a bunch of research. <laughs> then he wrote a book called Man and Dolphin, which was published in 1961 and became a massive bestseller, which explained all of his studies so far and then predicted that one day, there would be a dolphin delegate sitting in meetings at the UN representing the interests of marine life. <laughs> now, yes, that does sound a little bit cuckoo, but that was just the part where he predicted what could happen. Um, like, the actual study that he had done so far about dolphin communication was pretty groundbreaking, and it was actually so groundbreaking that it got the interest of NASA because this was like the early 60s and the possibility of space exploration was, was kind of exploding and it was of huge interest, like we're only nine years away from um, man landing on the moon at this point. So this was peak NASA time and NASA basically just had unlimited budget to do whatever weird shit they wanted. Um, so when humans first started to really look into space in a massive way at this time, they started really worrying about extraterrestrial life, mm. about aliens coming to get us. So a huge concern for NASA and something that was top of their agenda was figuring out a way to communicate with extraterrestrials when we come across them, which we obviously would soon, like they're probably just over on Mars and we just don't know it yet. Mm. So when the dudes at NASA read Dr. Lilly's book, they were like, okay, this guy is making great strides in figuring out how other species communicate and you could just take out the word dolphin and put in the word alien and like, bam, like we get how to understand how other animals or species talk. And like when we find them on the moon, we'll be able to understand what they're saying based on Dr. Lilly's studies. So NASA gives Dr. Lilly like millions upon millions of dollars to continue his research into interspecies communication uh -huh. through his study of dolphins. They wanted him to focus on how dolphins communicate with each other. So they kind of thought the idea of teaching dolphins English and them ending up sitting at the UN in a suit with a briefcase was, like, <laughs> probably a bit far-fetched. <laughs> but they were like, look, he can learn about how they communicate with each other and that will go a long way towards teaching us how aliens communicate with each other. But again... This is a guy who wrote about dolphins ending up at the UN and going for coffee with the delegate from Yemen. So, like, he's not really interested in NASA's sensible approach to his research. So he took all their money. He's like, yep, totally, I'll do that thing you say. And then he just devoted all his time to teaching dolphins to speak English. <laughs> now, he did this by building the Dolphinarium, which was called Dolphin House, and it was actually pretty cool. It was right on the beach... And it was sort of built into this cliff face and the dolphins were on the lower level, which was kind of like this open ocean pool. Um, so like when the, the tides came in and went out, that would sort of clean out the water and keep everything fresh and salt water and lovely for the dolphins in this pool. And then the next level up was sort of the laboratory where the humans were and would study these dolphins. And that's when Margaret showed up. 
So she had no experience, no history in science. She was 21. She just seemed really, really, really interested in the dolphins. (laughs) So Dr. Lily and the lab director, Greg, were like, okay, you can just come in as an unpaid volunteer. Like, whatevs, weirdo. So there's an amazing documentary. There's an amazing documentary from 2014 about this called The Girl Who Talked to Dolphins. And it's the only time Margaret has ever agreed to be interviewed about all of this. It was 50 years after it all happened and it is a wild ride watching an old lady talk about a long lost love, let me tell you. (laughs) So she says, when she got to Dolphin House, quote, there were three dolphins Pamela, Sissy, and Peter. (laughs) Peter was a young guy. He was sexually coming of age and a bit naughty. Yeah. You thought you had hillbillies in your story. (laughs) All three dolphins had been bought, just this is an interesting aside, from the studio who had used them to film the show Flipper. Oh. There you go. Margaret immediately took a special liking to Peter. She liked being around him so much, in fact, that soon she didn't want to leave the lab at the end of the day. So she convinced Dr. Lily to not only let her live in the upper human floor of the Dolphinarium, but she convinced Dr. Lily to flood the upper floor with three feet of water so Peter could live there with her. Not Pamela and Sissy. She didn't want them upstairs. They had to stay down in the dolphin pool all the time. It was only Peter that Margaret wanted up in their special apartment. The naughty boy. Yeah. (laughs) Margaret reasoned that if she could live intensely with Peter for a year or so, she could teach him English the way uh, a child learns it, like just... Babies are around people all day, every day, hearing them talk, and then, you know, they just start talking themselves. So she kind of thought that immersive environment would teach Peter to talk. And Dr. Lily, who was pretty radical to begin with, and at this point had started just taking a lot of LSD and riding around on a Segway all day. (laughs) I feel like this story is so nuts that the Segway doesn't even, like the same punch as usual. (laughs) Dr. Lily was pretty radical and he had started taking a lot of LSD Um, and he was touring a lot, like raising money for the Dolphinarium, so he wasn't around there a lot. And so when she asked him, can we flood the upper floors and have Peter up there with me all the time, he was just like, yeah, that sounds amazing, babe. Do it. (laughs) So he just let her do it. And Margaret and Peter start living on the top floor of the Dolphin House alone, together. Mm. Now, watching the documentary, she insists she was making so much progress. Like, that, she says Peter could understand letters and words and was saying them to her, but when you watch it, you're like, he is legit just making dolphin noises. Like, (laughs) she says things like, oh my God, he struggles so much with the letter M. Like, he's really trying. And then they cut to him and he's like, ah. And she's like, see, he's so close. He's nearly doing it. He's so close to saying Margaret. He just needs to get the letter M. Oh, my. 
she insists that to say the letter M so that he can say her name, he's going underwater and blowing bubbles. And that's him, say, that's him saying Margaret. That's what uh, she's So it's around this time that the two of them, according to the vet who had come in to check on the dolphins, start to fall in love. She says of that time, she says this in the documentary that you really must watch, the girl who talks to dolphins, she says all of this to the camera. She's not ashamed. <laughs> she says... There's moonlight reflecting on the water. This fin and this bright eye is looking at you. And I thought, everyone else my age is out to dinner having fun. Why am I here? But then you get back into it and it never occurred to me not to do it. What I was doing there was trying to find out what Peter was doing there and what we could do together. was now only working downstairs with the girl dolphins so Margaret and Peter were alone upstairs all the time and this is when things started to get sexual so like Margaret had pointed out Peter was a young male sexually in his prime she says he was very interested in my anatomy Peter liked to be with me he would rub himself on my knee or my foot or my hand And at first, I would put him downstairs with the girls because when he started to get a bit amorous, she'd be like, down to the girls, you go to do your business. Mm -hmm. But then she was like, oh, that's a whole chore because I've got to get him into the elevator thingy and put him down. And then I have to get him back in the elevator and bring him back up and it's a whole to-do. So then she said, eventually, I just started to jerk him off. She called it relieving him manually. (laughs) (laughs) Of these sexual encounters, Margaret says, it was very precious. I allowed it. I wasn't uncomfortable with it as long as it wasn't rough. And then, sensing that the interviewer in this documentary is looking at her like that, (laughs) she quickly goes, oh, no, no, it wasn't sexual on my part. But then she looks away and goes, it was sensual, though. (laughs) (laughs) We can get through this, you guys. She needed the book of days. Yeah, she did. She needed a friend to tell her no. She did. Okay, so... (laughs) Margaret's living with Peter in their love nest. Sorry, laboratory, laboratory. (laughs) For six months. And then NASA is like, oh, hey, we're sending someone to see how the research is going. And interestingly, just as another weird aside fact, um, they sent Carl Sagan, who worked for NASA at the time, a very oh. famous scientist and mm. astronomer. Um, and he turns up and he's like, <laughs> Dr. Lily's on LSD and this chick is shacked up with a dolphin in a private apartment upstairs. <laughs> You're meant to be researching how dolphins interact with each other and instead you've got a 23-year-old woman jerking one off. <laughs> Insisting that he's saying her name whenever he blows bubbles. 
Shut it down. NASA shuts the whole thing down. Pamela, Sissy, and Peter get sent to live at another facility that Dr. Lily owns in Miami, and Dolphin House, the Dolphinarium, mm. is closed. Margaret is heartbroken that she can't keep Peter. She says in this interview from 2014, he wasn't mine. I couldn't keep him. We couldn't elope, you know. We couldn't just rush off into the sea and disappear and hide. Now... I wish they'd tried. Now... Now, I know you're all thinking about the same question. Once you go dolphin, <laughs> can you go back? The answer is yes, but not that far. Margaret married the photographer who took all the photos of her and Peter together, and then she and this man lived in the dolphin house for 10 years. <laughs> They turned it into a house and had three children because Margaret didn't want to be too far from the memories of Peter. She says, it was a good house. There were good feelings there. I'm a human. I'm in love with a human. I married a human. I had babies. I also did have a very close encounter with, and then she stops herself and says, I can't even say dolphin. I had a close encounter with Peter. His name was Peter. With one dolphin. And then she looks into the camera and says, I was very, very lucky. (laughs) And that is just the gist of Margaret Howe Lovett, the woman who fell in love and had close encounters with a dolphin. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And we like to go out with a bang, so that's it for our show. We're leaving you right there. Thank you, Listener.